This doesn't mean, though, that you just mandate financial literacy in your state and get your janitor to teach it, unless that janitor is Matt Damon from Goodwill Hunting, in which case, sure, maybe he could teach financial literacy. But in general, they're saying like, Matt Damon, the, the crypto investor, same guy. <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Doogles, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. We started this whole thing off today, throwing bows. Started this whole thing off throwing bows today. Yeah. Why are we throwing bows? Well, everyone's favorite rapper is doing Skippy peanut butter commercials now. What What is he doing? <laughs> Yeah, dude, what has, it's kind of fascinating when you go back, you go back 25, 26 years ago, this was a time where the the hip hop world, it was transitioning a little bit and you had Death Row Records that was coming up and it was all about being gangsta, it was East Coast, West Coast, you know, et cetera. You had Snoop D-O-double-G back then who was in Death Row Records, who's now doing Corona commercials and yeah. having collaborations with Martha Stewart. Yep, And then you got throwing Bo's Luda. How mainstream that's all become. Because it was like, you know, your parents were going to look at you funny. if you're Even if you're listening to Ludacris, Nelly, whoever. And now they're all like doing commercials for Fortune 500 companies. Yeah. Pretty freaking it's, hilarious. It's good, though. I'm glad it's not all gangsta no more. Okay. It's mainstream. Yeah, at least no one's getting shot, right? Um, Speaking of Ludacris, though, can we just hop right in? Oh. There's two things that are ludicrous right now. Two. Michael Burry's portfolio, which I think we're going to get to in a little bit. Does he own more and than the, one stock now? <laughs> yeah, he doesn't just own prisons, which is <laughs> maybe we should be thankful. And the valuation for NVIDIA Corporation, okay. one of our the favorites on our show. So you want to talk Burry? I do. On the show, we often say, check out what smart people are doing and potentially follow it if you want, but understand how different their dynamics are your dynamics we talked about this with bill miller having 50 percent of his money in bitcoin but bill miller was worth something like 13 billion dollars or so like so it didn't matter he has his funny money in bitcoin and that's a different equation for him this is exactly michael burr's portfolio this week is like if i was worth let's call it a cool 100 million like i just have 100 million sitting in cash and then i had some other hundreds of millions over here that I wanted to throw at gambling stocks, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This yeah. is some of the stuff he bought, man. He doubled his stick in Baba, which I own Baba, but it's not, it's going to be a rocky road going forward. And then he bought things like Zoom Communications and a bunch of regional banks, man. <laughs> like, yeah. like PacWest, First Republic, um, Huntington, it, it, Capital One. It's just like, I think there's good value here. But I would never just like blindly follow this portfolio into, <laughs> oh, this is what I should buy with the money that like I might need for, I'm just throwing out examples, you, yeah. the uh, typical retail investor might need for like saving for your house or your kid's college fund or something much more tangible than just like, oh, I'm sitting on a ton of cash and I'm having some fun with it. Yeah. And this isn't the exact ratio or calculation, but it is kind of like like you're describing, like Taleb talks about in The Black Swan, where he went, you know, the portfolio that you should have is where you have 95% of your money is in like treasury bills. And then 5% is just 
buck wild black swan gambling that if that pays yeah. off it all works out i'm not advocating for that and i don't even think talib's really advocating for that he's just talking about black swans and how you could think about portfolio management but to, to your point there could be treasury bills and cash sitting that is the vast majority of what's going on here and it's just like let's show up in vegas with my zoot suit walk up in the casino yeah and throw it all down and if this pays off 3x awesome if it pays off zero i'm still good you never know what they're dealing with i don't know what Burry's dealing with i mean there are some i looked at a fair amount of these there are some juicy deals here but gosh there's so there's been so many bank failures i can't even keep it straight like first republic failed already correct um yeah so, so this is again it's the portfolio because this is 48 five days delayed the 13f this is the portfolio as of the end of march so like yeah, that's so he is no longer in his he portfolio. had two percent of his money in first republic fast so that it's it speaks to like my you know a li- this is a little yolo-ish but it's more like <laughs> devalue like i'm gonna buy a bunch of value and even if one or two of those goes bust or uh goes down 50 percent, i'll still probably be fine all in all yep. it's just the this is one of those and michael burry's portfolios frequently do this where you look at the 13f and you're like oh my goodness what is this guy doing <laughs> Yeah, and you can't come up with a thesis because of how often it changes. Like we were joking about, if you were come, trying to come up with a thesis last fall, you went, okay, I'm following Burry. I'm all in on prisons. And then if you wait a quarter, you're like, okay, I guess we're in banking now. <laughs> like it, it's, it's so... Banking and Chinese retail and Zoom. Yeah. I mean, Zoom at <laughs> least, I, I, th- I still think that's Kathy Woodstock, but... Zoom has been so beaten up that you can yeah. argue it's cheap yeah. now because it's like cheaper than it was pre-pandemic and a lot more people use it. Just fascinating. The <laughs> other, there's another, if you follow Seth Klarman in his 13F, he purchased debt, basically Coinbase bonds, which yeah. I also looked at and was like, oh, that's probably a good deal. But I, you know, I don't have the risk appetite for it. Well, again, he doesn't, it's, a uh, quarter percent of his portfolio, like it's nothing. And it doesn't really matter to him in the grand scheme of things. He just saw the asymmetric upside if Coinbase actually sticks around. Let me, spit some, let me spit some quick nonsense, like absolute garbage nonsense on bonds for one second before you get to NVIDIA. Okay. If you, if you could have, if one could have the means and the ability to get into local currency argentinian bonds right now it would be an interesting research opportunity i feel i feel really bad for the economy over in in argentina right now argentina is facing triple digit inflation rates and they just increased the interest rate in that country to 97 percent so the bond issuances that they had this spring were paying out some somewhere in the neighborhood of 50% interest rates, which in that country, like if you are living in that country is not good, right? Like, it, but as someone that is in a different country, it's like, it, it's an interesting place to like to research to figure out if you could, but to be able to, it's, you'd have to be in a different, like, I, I'm not, I'm not buying Argentinian bonds or even looking at them, but I was just looking at that and I was like, oh man. That's an interesting world that I wonder where people, I mean, to name an individual, not saying they're doing this, but people like Howard Marks that ha- would have the ability to and looks at distressed debt. I'm just curious what the view 
that they would have on international distressed debt, like country like Argentina would be. So, well, but doesn't the currency erode at a rate where if you have to bring it back to dollars to spend it, it's not a well, this is this is part of the yes, you're right. This is part of the reason why I was like, it would have to be in local currency. Like, there, there's like a you'd have to be able to play with that and probably sit for a little, little bit. Um, on it. That's all. Let's not go down that rabbit hole. It's neither Perfect. one of our. Speaking of um, uh, speaking of terrible investment ideas, I just <laughs> got to get this off my chest. All right, here's the stats on Nvidia right now. Market cap of about seven hundred and seventy-five billion, going on a trillion. Dugos, I believe, um, in pre-show research, you said is the sixth most expensive uh, stock in the U.S. No, sixth most most value value sorry that's what i meant six most uh valuable by market cap stock in the u.s current valuation metrics um price to book almost 34 price to sales 28 price to cash flow 133 and price to earnings basically 170 okay and i assume you came across this because you're researching deep value (laughs) exactly so there are a few things i go on the record with for a prediction. I hate predictions. I'm willing to go on the record, say the value of NVIDIA stock is going down. What's incredibly frustrating to me is that there's no good way to make money on this. But before we even get there, if if we have some new listeners to the show who maybe haven't heard this rant before, let me read you a quote of, from Scott McNally of the former CEO of Sun Microsystems just briefly about what it means for a stock to be trading at 10 times sales. And don't forget that NVIDIA is trading at almost 30 times sales. So at 10 times revenue, to give you a 10-year payback, you have to assume that 100% of revenues for 10 straight years go into dividends. That assumes that to get my shareholders, there is zero cost of goods sold, which is very hard for a computer company. There is also zero expensive which is really hard for a company of 40,000 employees. He goes on and on and on, talks about all these costs that wouldn't have to be there, even if he was able to give you 100% of sales back to the company. In NVIDIA's case right now, you take all those assumptions and then you say for 30 straight years, I give you 100% of sales. It's literally insane. This valuation is about as bad as it gets. Now, Dougal's the way you get around this is you go, well, maybe revenues are doubling or tripling or quadrupling every year. Yeah, Historically, last five or 10 years, revenues are going up about 25% a year. I'm not saying NVIDIA is a bad company. I'm not saying they have bad technology. They just can't. Their, their revenues are not going to go up 10 times in the next 10 years. They're going into economic headwinds. This valuation is beyond stupid. I, I love when you, when you get that definitive. I, I do love it. And you know that this the stock holds a special place in my heart in general. I held NVIDIA for a while, made a really solid return on NVIDIA, and it triggered a sell for me. It must have been 18 months ago. I think it was the beginning of 2022. I sold it. It triggered a sale for me on the upside. And the my upside trigger for a sale is really high. It means that you must have beaten the stock market by 35 times. <laughs> over some period of time and so that's why i ended up selling nvidia about 18 months ago it's exactly the context i was going to provide to get dougal's long trend momentum investor over here to get a sell criteria on the upside 
basically means like you bounced off the moon on your way up. <laughs> like your high end sell criteria is so insane. It's like no stock has ever been in this land before. But what's funny is one stock, and I'm sure more than one, has been in this land before in terms of valuation. We were just talking about it. It's basically Cisco in 1999, which some quick back of the envelope math tells us that it was around 30 times sales. Do you know what Cisco did for the next two-ish years? It went down 90%. Now, nothing is that definitive. The, the reason this is so hard to make money off of is because the time frame I can't really tell you. And I also can't tell you if it's going to go down 50% or 80% or 90%. But like this thing is going down. No doubt about and it. Do you know what Cisco did over the next 23 years? Uh, probably limped back to try and get to its 1999 value. Down 30%. Price. Crazy. <laughs> yeah. Again, not all companies are equal, et cetera, et cetera. But it is fascinating. That's really interesting. I I did not think that NVIDIA was going to be able to bounce back to that that quickly. There's one other thing I have to talk about with this. And, and sorry for monopolizing the start of the show. But I would love to make money on this. I would absolutely love to. Now, there's a couple options here. And there's probably more. But just as a thought exercise, I could short the thing. I'm not going to short the thing. Because in order to short the thing, you have to go on margin. Because if the stock continues to go up, uh, your brokerage wants to cover your position, right? And that could mean that companies that I really believe in and, and love owning and want to own a part of that business get taken away from me simply if the silliness continues, right? So I'm not going to short the thing. I could do some option strategy, which would be stupid for anyone, but but a more sophisticated investor could look into that, right? Your average investor should definitely not. Um, but because this thing is so over the top, like the put options have it priced in that this thing is going to fall off a cliff. So the economics of that don't really seem to make sense. Like there's just no good strategy that I can come up with that like makes this into a value investment. Yeah, there's there's no arbitrage here, as you said before. It's just bets on either side. Either either you bet that the company that people are still gonna allow the company to to fly, right? Or you bet that it's gotta fall so dramatically that it ends up hitting a point past even where the bears would think it would go. Yeah. And they're just, it's just bets. It's pure bets. The fun thing about that betting past where the bear thinks it might go is I can build a mental case that might get there because if you say revenues flatline because of economic turmoil or because the AI hype and the automatic, the driverless cars hype like sizzles a little bit and say you come back to a typically insane valuation like 10 times sales. So if sales is flat, you come back to 10 times sales <laughs> the stock's going down 33%. If <laughs> revenue has a hiccup or two and you come back to insane valuation like seven times sales, I mean, that you can do some mental cases, but you're right. It's a bet. It's not an investment. And that just drives me crazy. Um, yeah. yeah. So. It's a little to hit on uh, Cisco for one more second. So Barry Ritholtz okay. came out with a, a post this week and it was about Cisco back in, the, in 2000. It was short, but just hitting on a fortune. He pulled a couple paragraphs from a fortune piece from back then. Long story short, 
it was saying how John Chambers, who was the founder, co-founder, I think, and CEO of Cisco at the time, was saying John Chambers, world's best company manager, Cisco stock you have to own. And I, not fully similar here, but I would say that Jensen, the CEO of NVIDIA, is pretty dynamite. Like a gr great CEO, I don't know what he's like as a leader inside the business, but of the business, great CEO has shown the ability to pivot, to go into, uh, to recognize trends, to get into them, to drive a lot of technological innovation, et cetera. And all the numbers you just threw out. <laughs> like, so you can have a wonderful leader and a terrible stock. You can have a wonderful company and a terrible stock. So, all right, can I transition uh, using the bubble theme? Okay, so I'm going to stick on bubblicious for a moment. Pop that bubblicious into your mouth right quick and talk about Japanese stocks. Japanese stocks, not in a bubble right now. But the reason I'm saying bubble is because the, the Nikkei, I think that's how you pronounce it in America at least, the Nikkei index just hit its 1990 high. So the bubble era of Japan was 70s to the 1980s is really when it got buck wild, right? And then it burst in the, the early uh, 90s. And so the 1990 high was not its all-time high, by the way, but it was this is the high of the last you know 20 plus years. And so it's pretty close. And I think it's like 20% off of its all-time high, something like that. 33 years. <laughs> 33 years is what it took to get back there for that bubble. Japanese stocks, as you know, Skippy, and listeners of the show for a couple of years now, I've been looking at I've just been interested in Japanese stocks for the last couple of years. And so I've been looking at like the history of that bubble. We've talked about that on the show about a year or so ago. Makita, the power tools company, hit my radar. And so I was watching that. I got into Makita last fall. But a few things are now happening with Japanese stocks that we've touched on in the show before as potential to happen, but they seem to be occurring now. So one is activism in, the, in, in Japan has increased. Two is Japanese companies have wads of cash and they're starting to spend it. So this is probably the a big reason why Buffett got into Japanese companies a couple of years ago because he saw that the, the potential in that. So the buybacks, which is not something that Japanese stocks or companies have typically done before, are starting to increase. Dividends are becoming a bit more of a thing. Cross shareholding, which we've talked about before, which is where one leader of a company will own the stock of another company. And so those leaders will basically be like, since we both own enough to have like voting rights in the other company, we can kind of control what's happening. So the activists are pushing against that. So cross shareholdings coming down, increased governance is over this whole thing. So it's it's kind of, it's it's a fascinating time to take a look at how the businesses of Japan could be more investor friendly than they have in the past. What that leads to, who knows? But it's just interesting to take a look at. Yeah. Who knew that you'd have such a great analogy in your back pocket? Japanese stock market in 1990 is NVIDIA in 2023. <laughs> <laughs> I'm basically like ready to say, and 33 years from now, NVIDIA yeah. <laughs> might be yes, trading exactly. at $350 a share. There you go. Um, fascinating stuff. I'm glad your hypothesis is working out here. Um, and when Buffett's over there, you got to pay careful attention. But yeah. I think the most mind-blowing thing that's tough to reconcile is 33 years and your money goes nowhere, right? Your whole life, people tell you, 
put money in the stock market. It's a great investment. And if your stock market gets too expensive and you completely disregard value, valuation, you could be sitting on your hands for what feels like a generation to get back to previous norms. Now, is that how it actually works if you dollar cost average and take advantage of buying at those lower prices? No, but it's not something we've seen in America. And when we see it, because it's only a matter of time, it will change perspectives of investing for generations to come. Like the people that grew up in Japan, say, say you were reaching professional age in 1990, you have a different opinion of investing in the Japanese stock market than other countries around the world because you watched it do exactly. nothing for 33 years. That's exactly right. Uh, as you brought up before, the closest that we have in the US is looking at the 1929 crash to when that high was reached again in 1954. So we have this 25 year period, which isn't 33 years, just to be clear. I did my quick math, but that's the closest that we have. And it's why people that grew up in like the Great Depression era, their view of investing was different. That's where you get the people that are like deep, deep value, mar high margin of safety, right? Type of folks yeah. there if you are an investor, but most people weren't. You had the resurgence of uh, investment and liquidity that started happening in the 1950s, 1960s here when there was a different generation, right? That started getting into the market because how, how could you not be burnt in that world? Oh, you have to. That's a perfect example. Speaking of getting burnt, can I shift gears to people throwing their money away in the tune of $10 million? Sure, let's do it. Have you followed the GPT portfolio? Yes, I take I gander at it on the Twitters, yeah. All right, so there's an academic, there's some academic research that came out, which in my opinion was basically like monkeys throwing darts, where it looked like chat, GPT in one test for short-term trading outperformed the market. And so, <laughs> yes. so they didn't, folks didn't wait around for 30 years, you know, get this hypothesis proven. They didn't wait, even wait for a second academic study. They just said, oh my goodness, chat GPT is the greatest investor of all time. We are taking $50,000 and we're creating like a social media campaign and everything else to actively trade this. And if you want to join us in turning our portfolio decisions over to ChatGPT, jump on the ride. Currently, 17,000 people and more than $10 million has been thrown into this. Okay. I want to I say Ponzi scheme, but I didn't realize that because when I looked, I thought I saw it at 50 grand. They started at 50. They opened it up with some technology where you can like it's a app called autopilot where you can like trade along. So you throw your money in there. 17,000 people, $10 million is in this. Like you listen to Buffy, you listen to anyone that knows what they're talking about. What's one of the first things they say, they say, know what you're investing in. <laughs> they, they, they do say that these people, I guess, theoretically, they know what they're investing in because the chat bot tells them what it bought for them. They, they don't know the ins and outs of those companies. It's like another, it feels like crypto almost. I mean, so it, it again, it's monkeys throwing darts. Will they outperform? Maybe. I'd say that it's coin flip. Will they underperform? Maybe. Hopefully they won't completely lose their shirt because hopefully there's an, I mean, but 
This so is garbage, Jugles. Th- th- this this is where, as much as we've said that giving you know one one and a half percent to a financial advisor, like you should think about that. Make sure that you're getting that value for it. Just any human being that can just keep <laughs> your money away from you, you know, like if you were thinking about doing this, it's worth a percent just to make sure that you don't have access to your own money. I think that's a good way to say it. I think we end this topic on that point. <laughs> maybe not even a human being, maybe a monkey. Maybe you should consult with a monkey before. <laughs> the monkey's just, it just runs away from you. It just holds, <laughs> it holds the, like the password to your bank account, a little briefcase and just runs away from you. I do love it. I'm going to take this then. I think this is, this is great. Reach into the fishbowl to talk about financial literacy. Thank you, Mike, for sending this over. Financial literacy was the center of this article uh, from NPR. And the title of it is The Case for Financial Literacy in Education, which we've discussed here about how there are always these cases where you say, okay, for this semester, we're going to have you invest in stocks. We brought up a different and I think more reasonable example uh, recently about uh, investing for like 25 years. But this was just looking at, it was looking across both work and school. Um, a couple of researchers, Anna Maria Lasardi of George Washington and Olivia Mitchell of UPenn did research about a decade ago to look into financial literacy. Uh, and they basically came away with a couple things. One, financial literacy is uh, illiterate in the US and, and other countries. And two, it's historically under or unfunded. It's taught by unqualified people where it is taught, right? It's just sad, like the state of it's sad. They just came out with a, uh, a paper over the last couple months, again, which is like some updated thinking. I want to drop a couple facts from it, and then I'm going to quiz you on your own financial literacy. Because they, they came up with a three-question survey, dead simple, three-question survey. And from the survey, they've been able to find that this survey is a good indicator of financial literacy. Don't look at the questions. Don't try and don't try and look at the questions. Yeah, don't I'm cheat. Not, I don't even know where to find the questions. You got <laughs> Don't cheat. Don't cheat. Okay. So first I'm gonna I'm gonna say this. Uh one thing they found is that in the in their research, as we already know, but financial literacy, they're saying, is indeed not a sideshow. So they've proven this through their research. They found that 30 to 40% of wealth inequality near retirement can be accounted for by financial literacy. So it ain't no joke. This doesn't mean, though, that you just mandate financial literacy in your state and get your janitor to teach it, unless that janitor is Matt Damon from Goodwill Hunting, in which case, sure, maybe he could teach financial literacy. But in general, they're saying like- Matt Damon, the, the crypto investor? Same guy? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I specifically said- from Goodwill Hunting. <laughs> All right. Um, the implications that they found in their research, too, these are my words, not exactly theirs. I just kind of took out the themes that they said. One, you, we have, we do have to teach financial literacy because it's so important. Two, make sure that the way you teach it is applicable to the people that are taking it. Three, make it so that it's widespread, meaning like look at the diversity of the individuals that you're teaching it to and ensure that applicability applies to all of them. And then the last is make it lifelong. That financial literacy is not a one-time like retirement seminar. It's not a one-time class you take. You have to look at the way that someone's life and the financial decisions in someone's life that they will have to make and then ensure that they are learning finances all along. So I think they're they're good, like simple takeaways. Well, but you know why that's so important? Because if you take a financial literacy 
C course five years ago and completely aced it, like, and completely understood at that time in your life, you understood everything that's going on and you have a plan of attack. Like how much changes in five years, not only do you, then you have the temptations from the GPT portfolio and NVIDIA and still like some crypto hogwash, maybe some real estate, uh, tricks going out there on TikTok investors, but then you also might be like ready to buy your house. And that's an entirely different set of financial exactly. literacy pieces that you need to understand. Great examples. You ready for your quiz? I'm pretty scared. Yeah, I know it is. When I when I looked at these, I was like, oh gosh, am I about <laughs> to, is all of my like self-worth about to go away here? So these are the big three financial literacy questions. They are multiple choice. So I'm going to read you the question, give you the multiple choice answers. You say which is the answer. Okay. First question. Suppose you had $100 in a savings account and the interest rate was 2% per year. After five years, how much do you think you would have in the account if you left the money to grow? Multiple choice answers. More than $102. Exactly $102. Less than $102. I do not know or I refuse to answer. To, re to recap, you have $100, <laughs> interest rate is 2%. After five years, would you have more than 102, exactly 102, less than 102? Yeah. I mean, I thought it was going to be a little more challenging. It'd be like more than 110-ish. So just answer it's the question. More than 102. I think you're, trying to, you're trying to dodge the question. It's okay. more than 102. But okay, I'd more love than 102. to do the... Ding, 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 uh, ding, ding. Okay. I plan on Look. doing the refuse to answer to for the next question, just because that's a hilarious. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And, okay, number two. And for if you're following along, and maybe you're not financially literate, all that's going on there is you going, okay, a hundred bucks. I make two percent interest. That means the first year I get two bucks, so I have a hundred two. And then the next year I have a hundred two dollars. I make two percent interest, so that exactly. means I make slightly more than two dollars the second yep. year. I thought it was going to be again much more sophisticated about exponential growth and trying yeah, to extrapolate I know you that did. out. I know you did. Okay. Number two, imagine that the interest rate on your savings account was 1% per year and the inflation rate was 2% per year. After one year, how much would you be able to buy with the money in this account? More than today? Exactly the same as today. Less than today? Do not know. Refuse to answer. Ding, ding, ding. Refuse to answer. But it's... <laughs> It's less than today. Your purchasing power goes down. I would <laughs> hope this is straightforward for everyone listening because yeah. it's actually relevant now for the first time in a long time, right? So it, it, we've talked a lot about interest rates on the show. And I know, I actually physically know people that have made thousands of dollars just based on the stuff we've mentioned with Treasury Direct, I-bonds, and other smart high-yield savings accounts stuff. That's great. But- yeah. If you're making 4% right now and it feels awesome, but inflation's still at 5.5%, you better be making that 4% because it's terrible if you're making 1%, but mm -hmm. your purchasing power is still going down Yep. in the grand yep. scheme of things. Okay, question number three. Please tell me whether this statement is true or false. Buying a single company stock usually provides a safer return than a stock mutual fund. True, false, do not know, refuse to answer. This one I would actually refuse to answer. <laughs> um, they want you to say that a mutual fund is safer because hold of on, the diversity that comes. Okay, let me. I'm gonna. I'm gonna reframe the question for you. Yeah. Please tell me whether the statement is true or false. Buying Nvidia stock usually <laughs> provides a safer return than a stock mutual fund. 
You stole my joke. <laughs> <You literally laughs> I saw it coming. I saw it coming. Okay. So what they, so they, they took, like they had larger surveys and they ended up coming down to these three because of the exact points that you raised. What these questions test in a simple way is question number one is a basic understanding of compounding. Mm -hmm. Two, which was the interest rate inflation rate one, is a basic understanding of costs versus returns. And three is a basic understanding of risk management. So that is, that's what, that's what they were testing. Okay. Now, so you, you passed with flying colors, just like you, honestly, when I went to pull these up, I was like, oh God, I'm about to embarrass myself, but here's what they found. So when they, when they did this, they found was 43% of respondents in the U S answered all the questions correctly. 29%, 29% of women answered all three questions correctly versus 48% of men. And if you go to, if you look at it from an ethnic perspective, half of white people correctly answered all three questions, 26% of blacks and 22% of Hispanics answered all three questions correctly. So this gets, what it highlights is again, what we're looking at here, basic understanding of compounding, basic understanding of cost versus returns when it comes to money management and risk management, baseline concepts, 43% respondents in the US got all three. Absolutely fascinating, surprising in a negative way. It makes me think that like our show should be about basic interest calculations and stuff because we're over here talking valuation metrics and shorting and put options and all this archaic nonsense that, you know, is pretty sophisticated in the grand scheme of things. I, that's just unfortunate. It is. Like we got to do something all. about this. We, we is the broader we, not necessarily Skippy yeah. and Dougals, but I would also have interest in doing something about this. Oh, okay. On that note, what else you got in your fishbowl? A quick hit from GMO. They came out with a piece called, I got I to gotta get the actual title right. The Curious Incident of the Elevated Profit Margins, which is a joke on the Curious Incident of the Dog at Nighttime or whatever that book is. And I'll cut to the chase. It says all the same things that every other smart quant shop is saying right now. U.S. stocks are expensive. He speculates that U.S. stocks are expensive because we've been running historically large deficits. And so basically, he went on the record 10 years ago and said, I don't expect US outperformance to continue. And then what happened? It continued. Yeah. And so he's doing a look back now. And I appreciate so many things about this. One is he's going, I was wrong. I was clearly wrong. There's no like, it, I, I felt like my facts were right at the time, but the outcome is what matters. And I was wrong. So he doesn't look back at that, which I appreciate. And then talks through what it looks like today, um, talks through some of the macroeconomic stumps that he thinks allowed it to stay elevated for longer and says what everyone else on earth says, which is emerging market value stocks are super cheap. And I like that because it, uh, it's confirmation bias for me. So, yay. There you go. And we're going to talk about that a little more specifically. We got to do that. It's probably, I think sometime in June is the right time for us to do our premium episode. Uh, and want to talk about some emerging market stuff there. I got one last thing in the fishbowl we're hit on. Sam Zell, founder of Equity Group Investments, unfortunately passed away this week. Equity Group, uh, big real estate investor is mostly what they're, they're known for. 
And uh, in like looking through some articles there, I came across a blog post from Trent Griffin back in 2015 that I just, I think does a good job of highlighting some of the, the lessons that were taught by, by Sam Zell. So there are 12 in this, uh, in this blog post, it names 12 different quotes basically from Sam Zell and then writes out like what he learned from that. I'm going to name four of them. I'm going to throw out four of them and then we can, we can talk about them. One is when everyone is going right, look left. I've spent my whole life listening to people explain to me that I just don't understand, but it didn't change my view. Many times, however, having a totally different independent view of conventional wisdom is a very lonely game. We've discussed contrarian investing before. It's, it's, uh, it's important. And what I really love is so in the commentary that Trent Griffin's putting here, he says, Sam Zell is saying that you should look left, which doesn't necessarily mean you should go left. Yeah. And I think that that is super important. It's like, like you always say on this show, these are research recommendations, not investment advice, right? It's something to take a gander at, see if it makes sense for you. I mean, you know what happens when you go left and maybe you should have looked left? You buy coal stock in the 30s <laughs> and now it's at 19, even though they have a real estate portfolio valued at $8 billion, which let's just hypothetically say it's worth 25% of that. The current market cap is $2 billion. I mean... There, it's no fun to do the contrarian stuff, Dougals. It's my life, and it sucks. You should, <laughs> you should learn from your mistakes. And so, what you did was you bought a super cheap stock and lost yeah. money. What you should do now is buy a super expensive stock and Nvidia. see if. <laughs> I mean, it's the only, it's the only lesson worth learning. I think I'll be buying more coals. <laughs> All right. Second quote from Sam Zell. Listen, business is easy. If you've got a low downside and a big upside, you go do it. If you've got a big downside and a small upside, you run away. The only time you have any work to do is when you have a big downside and a big upside. Mm -hmm. I think it's so well said, so incredibly well said. Those are the times. And um, even in, in every, this is beyond investing, even in, in everyday life, if you have a big downside and very limited upside, which are, you find people in these situations, I, I'll say, I find people in these situations all the time. Where they're like, I'm not sure what to do in these in these in this situation. I'm like, the downside is huge. Yeah. And like the upside is you're gonna feel better five minutes from now. Like that's the only the only upside is like you're gonna get like an endorphin rush, right? Yep. Five minutes from now. That's it. Sam Zell was it. on, he was on with Meb Faber in the last month. So literally, like within the wow. last 45 days before he passed, he did an interview. I think it's his his last one. And one of the things he said that was so interesting is I think he had purchased a real estate portfolio of like 115 different uh, properties. Mm -hmm. And he, over the last seven years, had sold 114 of those. Like, <laughs> so funny now because he made a lot of his wealth in real estate that yeah. he was he, he was literally just on the record. Like, real estate's been crazy forever and we've been offloading properties. Hasn't everyone right at the time where the world is freaking out about commercial real estate. Like he's just been so far ahead of the game, in my opinion, largely because of common sense. He just was actually <laughs> yeah. doing the math on these yeah. things. Common sense goes a long way, strangely. <laughs> so uh, third quote, you can have all the assets in the world you want, but if you have no liquidity, it doesn't matter. So this quote ends up going a lot longer. I just pulled that part out of it. But within this quote, uh, there's like a little story that he says, I think it was like in 1990 or 91, something like that. 
about 30 years ago. It's like he read an article in Forbes or something that said that he was worth a billion dollars. And he was saying, I was trying to figure out how to pay payroll. <laughs> and I, apparently I'm worth a billion dollars. <laughs> I think it sums it up so nicely. <laughs> I see this all the time. You know, Twitter's tried to be more in your face with the artificial intelligence and recommendations. It's trying to be more TikTok-like. Yep. And there's always like someone going, I grew this company to be a $30 million company. Let me tell you how I did it. And I'm just constantly going like, why? If you're sitting off in the sunset with your $30 million, why are you on Twitter trying to tell anyone what you like? Just go have on. It clearly means that there's a lot of like paper tigers there. If you're onto your next act, trying to explain to people how they should do exactly what you did, you should be like, not on social media right now, dude. You should be like enjoying life. Sorry, many rants, maybe not related to Sam, but it, especially if you, if you if your time is worth five thousand dollars an hour. <laughs> Same exact thing. Yeah. All right. Last one. Anytime you don't sell, you buy. Very simple. What this quote is about is opportunity cost, and it's saying that if you own, let's give an example. It, Let's give the example you brought up. If you own NVIDIA at whatever it is, like $315 a share, whatever it is right now, if you own that and you're not selling it, it's an equivalent of you saying, I'm buying it. Like I'm, I'm investing it at this point in time. From an opportunity cost perspective, what that means is what you're not doing is taking the cash that you have there and putting it into something else. Yeah. That's that's the point of it. Now, uh, as any quote or expression goes, like it's simplistic, right? So it doesn't take into account in that circumstance, like tax consequences and all that other stuff. But from a mental model perspective, I think it's valuable. Like, is there a different place that I could have this? Whether that place is just not invested in cash, whether it's treasury bills, whether it's another stock or bonds, whatever it might be. I think it's an interesting mental model. I like it. I have one Sam Zell story to wrap up. He was on oh. CNBC in the past two years. And in the middle of the interview, the little pop-up window pops up on a Zoom meeting that says, are you running out of time? Apparently, Sam was using his own Zoom communications, and he was worth $5 billion at the time. Now, why CNBC couldn't send him their own Zoom link to do the video <laughs> interview? I will never know, because I would assume CNBC actually pays their Zoom bills. Sam Zell does not. And that's an amazing lesson, right? There like That go. just tells you the type of guy he was, where he wasn't wasting the... 12 bucks a month, despite the fact that he owned assets. Again, was he struggling to make payroll at the time? I doubt it, but maybe. But like an incredibly frugal guy from at least what I know of him, despite being really successful. Thank you, Sam. Rest in peace. That's a wrap for today, but please send us listener mail, comments, questions you have, skippydoogles at gmail.com, premium subscribers. SkippyDougals.Supercast.com. Please go to that. Check out our premium offerings. You get early uh, episodes. You get special drops, like we mentioned here, uh, that we have about what we're thinking about in the markets, more specifically than we cover on the show, et cetera. Please do that. There's a chance that next week we take a week off. There's some travel happening. So there's a chance there. You get the, you get the Substack, SkippyDougals.Substack.com. No matter what, we'll still put out some articles there, but there's a chance we take a week off. There's also a chance we'll get some real live reporting from halfway across the world. So <laughs> tune in, folks. Figure out what you're going to get. I still, man, I I still just picture you in a pub like Brad Pitt in in the big short trading equities, <laughs> right? Trading equities there and us capturing that. 
for the people. Yeah, of course. <laughs> All right. Uh, share the show with a friend, and we'll see you next week, guys.